Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 47, excuse me, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of your God. A hug. A hug. A simple hug communicates something about the relationship of those who share the embrace that often words just can't express. I mean, married people, you know this, and and all of you know this, because perhaps this idea is, is no more made apparent than when we think about all the different people we hug. Married couples, the hug you give to your spouse is is different. Whether it's a hug that I get in the morning or receive after being away from my wife for a long time, it's wonderful. But it's much different than the hugs my sons give me after I haven't seen them during the workday. And even that hug, it's different than the hug we give one another before I tuck them into bed at night. And adults... All of you know this, no matter what age or stage you are in life, it's special when you get to give your mother or your father a hug. In 2020, I went back to Wisconsin to go home for my grandmother's funeral, and I got to see my other set of grandparents. But I couldn't hug them because there was a window of plexiglass between us and them because of coronavirus. And that meant something. But then this last summer, I got to go visit them, and I did get to give both my grandmother and my grandfather a hug, and that meant the world to me, and I think to them as well. And then there's hugs between friends. Ladies, I, I don't know what it's like when, when you hug your lady friends, but guys, you know how it is. It's the, you know, arm, pat on the back, and, and maybe it's really hard, like, thump, just so, you know, they know. Hugs between friends, it communicates something, right? And it means a lot, even if words can't express what that hug means. That's what it's like whenever I see these guys. This is a group of five of my closest friends, and some of you have seen a picture of these guys before because 
this group of guys is a group of six pastors who live in five different states. And yet, even though we don't see each other very often, they mean a great deal to me because this is the first and the longest active small group that I've ever been a part of. Today, we're talking about God's people gathering together in groups. And you know, here at this church, we are passionate about groups. We promote groups. We preach about groups. It's our goal to have everyone who is a part of this faith family in a small group. But can I say something? Small groups, as much as I'm about them, they haven't really always been a part of my Christian life. And perhaps that's true for you too. See, I grew up as a pastor's kid, which means I went to church every single Sunday. And I also had to go to Sunday school every single Sunday. In grade school, I also went to a Christian day school, which means I learned about God's word first thing every morning, and I went to chapel on Fridays. But I wasn't in a small group where I had to talk about my faith or encourage one another, someone else in their faith. And my mom and dad, they weren't in a small group either. And then I went to high school. I actually went to our synods high school, which prepares men and women for ministry. And there I went to chapel, not just once a week, but twice a day. And I went to a class about the Old Testament or the New Testament four or five times a week, depending on which year in school you were. And even though I lived in a dormitory of hundreds of Christian young men, there was no one who I sat down with and talked to about faith struggles, victories in growing in my faith. There's no one really checking up on me personally, spiritually. And then I went to Martin Luther College, our church body's college, which prepares pastors and teachers. And I studied the Bible in Greek and in Hebrew. I went to chapel again twice every single day, but sit down with other Christians and talk personally about your faith, be held accountable to spiritual disciplines? Nope. Oh, there was that one month where a group of guys tried to get together for a Bible study, but fizzled out over the semester break. It wasn't until 2012 when I was at the seminary where one of our professors gathered together a group of guys and in so few words said, you should be a small group. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Like going to school to be a pastor during a period of time where the small group movement became a thing. And it wasn't until relatively a few years ago that I ever experienced what that was all about. And yet ever since, God has opened up my eyes again and again and again to all of the good that God gives, God blesses his people with. Whenever God's people gather together, 
in groups. It's in groups that God, through brothers and sisters in Christ, embraces you by, well, giving you a spiritual hug to remind you of the love that Christ has for you. It's in groups that God uses people to speak scripture to you, to remind you of the peace that you have in Christ, to remind you of all of the promises that are yes in Christ. Maybe even teach you something new. It's in groups that God gives you seriously spiritual confidence in Christ through the Holy Spirit by having one of your brothers and sisters give you a pat on the back on the way out the door that you get to walk back into your life, your callings with, knowing whose you are and who you are. It happens in groups. Other Christians gathered together where God blesses his people. And since 2018, just a few months after we started this church, we've been about groups. And we've learned some things, haven't we? We've learned that there's some groups that click right away. And there's other groups that maybe don't. I remember one that I was a part of six weeks later, I was walking into it with someone and they leaned over and they said, just wait, seven, seven's the lucky number. Seven times is where, you know, groups finally start to mesh. And that person was right. We know that there's groups that have clicked and there's some that kind of maybe act like middle school clicks. I know there's others that have deep and real spiritual relationships with one another where they encourage one another, lift one another up. Even if they're not the best of friends, they have that connection. But I'm still haunted by the people who have come up to me who aren't in a group now, some who aren't here now, who said the group they were a part of was more like middle school than a Christian ministry. There's some groups filled with people who care deeply and will never give up on you and who have done amazing things to support others. And there's some groups that just quit and fizzle out. There's some groups that can't wait to get together again after our breaks. And there's some groups that just never do. So where are you at? Personally, when it comes to the idea of collectively gathering together in groups? Have you seen the need for groups? Have you seen the incredible risk that is involved with groups, opening yourself up to other people? Have you experienced the incredible reward that God pours out in our lives when we get to connect with Christ in community? Typically, when I ask people about groups, I get one of three responses. Sometimes people tell me, oh, I love groups. I love my group. That's not the majority of people. This is the majority. Normally, when I ask people about groups, they say, yes, pastor, I'm in a group. I go to group. Even when I'm tired after work, even when I'm hungry after work, even when I don't want to go to my group, I do. And pastor, I just got to say, it's always great. And I'm always glad I go, even when I don't feel like it. But then there's the third group. 
ask them about groups, and they start to talk really fast. <laughs> they start to kind of get a little nervous, and it usually ends with me hearing from them about how busy they are. I don't know where you are on that spectrum of responses when it comes to groups. But this morning, what we're going to do is talk about why groups are problematic and why groups are also incredibly powerful. Those two things we're going to look at, and, and the hope is this. Even if you're someone who loves groups and is all about groups or you're not, what we're going to do is look at God's word and gain a collective understanding, a collective language, if you will, about why God's people gathering together in groups is, is so very good. What we're going to do is look at Acts chapter 2, which we read earlier, and I'm going to read it one more time to you. As I do, here, here's a challenge I want to give to you. I want to see if you can pick out the key word, a key word that's going to help us understand why groups are a little bit problematic and also a lot a bit powerful. As I read this, let me first set the context to you that this is what takes place immediately after Pentecost. Pentecost was the day where the apostles and the followers of Christ were gathered together in a room and there was a rush of wind, like a train coming through their house and the Holy Spirit showed up in a way that he hasn't ever showed up before. It was manifested by tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles, and they immediately began to speak in other languages. Peter spoke in a language that, well, a crowd there could understand, and he preached a sermon throughout Acts 2, and by the end of it, after hearing God's word, 3,000 people became Christians. They were baptized, and this is what the rest of Acts chapter 2 has to say about those 3,000 plus people. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would you raise your hand if you thought the word that I was asking you to pick out was together. I mean, I wouldn't blame you if you thought that was the word that is maybe the key to understanding why groups are problematic and also powerful, but that's not it. I highlighted it because we're there and we're in a series called Together, Together, but that's not it. And I feel bad, maybe I tricked you and maybe I tricked you a little more because the word that I want us to focus in on for a moment this morning is really there twice, but in English, it's translated differently both times. It's this. They devoted themselves and they continued to meet. The word that's there is proskaretes. It's a Greek word. And what that Greek word means in both occasions that it shows up is this. 
to hold fast to something. I'm starting with the second dictionary definition because that's how it's used in this section of God's word. That it means to be devoted to something, to continue in or persevere in something. But it also can mean the same thing, not just to something, but to someone. To stick by. To be close at hand to someone. To attach oneself to someone. Or be faithful to someone. Pros carterontes. That's the word I want us to focus in on. And maybe now, maybe now, you're starting to see why I introduced this sermon by talking about hugs. It's because when God's people heard the gospel, what the Holy Spirit did through the words, through their baptism, is embrace them into God's family and naturally, without compulsion, they embraced one another. They embraced one another by grabbing their arms around the apostles' teachings, something we call the gospel. And they grew. They grew corporately in number, numerically, and they grew personally, spiritually. And it's because of what they wrapped their arms around together. It's what they devoted themselves to. It's it's what they persevered in. It's what they continued in. It's this. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. God's people gathered together and they hugged God's word. They committed to together proclaiming to one another who Jesus was, what he did for them, how he came for you. He suffered for you. He died for you. And he rose for you. And he gives forgiveness and life and salvation to you. But not only that, God's people gathered together and they hugged the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. What they dedicated their time together to was this special sacrament, this this intimate meal in which Christ really does give up himself, his body, his blood, for your forgiveness and the strengthening of your faith. When God's people gathered together, they also folded their hands and wrapped their arms around God's gifts of prayer, which isn't just God's people getting together and saying magical words together, but it's God's people expressing back to God the words that he gives us, the promises that he gives to us, and through that, being reminded of the hope that we have, reminding others of the hope they have in Christ. That's what God's people did. And they did it together. Yes, they did it together in the temple, but they also did it together in their homes. They also wrapped their arms around this idea of fellowship. What is fellowship? Let me quick say what it's not. Fellowship is not just the, hey, how you doings? Let's grab some coffee and some danishes in the lobby and then be on our way. Fellowship is not just the wonderful blessing that we have of knowing that other Christians and other churches believe in the same things that we do. 
What fellowship is in the way that God teaches it and God portrays it in his word is something that's relational. It is God's people connecting to Christ by connecting to one another. It is God's word and sacrament, and that only that makes faith and makes faith grow and makes the church grow. But that only happens, and those things are only found wherever God's people gather together in groups. That's fellowship. It's you and me showing up together. Me being known and and you being known. Me encouraging you, you encouraging me. Us holding one another accountable and really doing it in a way that points one another back to Christ. That's what God's people did. You say, Matt, what's problematic about that? (laughs) Like, it started with 12 dudes and maybe their families and grew to 3,000 people. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. What's so problematic about groups? Well, groups are a lot like dynamite. Dynamite actually has a really good purpose. It clears away stuff in mining so people can extract the goods out of the ground. It also is used in building things to get rid of bad things or hurdles so that good things can be built up. But if handled wrongly, you know dynamite can also be deadly. That's true with groups. Because in groups, what you have is people. And you have people who are saints, whose names are written in the book of life. But these saints are simultaneously sinners, and they do sin throughout their life. And there's someone who knows this. There's someone who knows that groups have a great potential to be powerful and yet also have the pension to be a big problem. And his name is Satan. And Satan's number one goal is the exact opposite of God's number one goal for you. God's goal is that you are connected to Christ with him in heaven for all eternity. And how does God carry out that goal? He carries out that goal by giving you his word and sacraments and giving you something called the church, something called people that gather together in groups. And so Satan, who wants you to be with him forever in hell, doesn't start there. He starts with groups. And he does whatever he can to get you to believe that you don't need them. Because he doesn't start with telling you that you don't need God or God's word or God's sacraments to grow your faith. You'd never believe that. But he does trick so many Christians into believing They don't really need other Christians. How many of you have ever heard of King Frederick II, the king of Germany? He was the king who who lived and ruled that area in the 13th century. And on top of trying to make himself out to be another holy Roman emperor, he also is known for carrying out one of the most 
diabolic experiments that ever was. King Frederick knew six different languages. He's a pretty smart guy. But his mother tongue was German, and he believed that was the best language. And so he wanted to know if children were raised without anyone speaking to them a language, what language would they grow up speaking? Oh, he was pretty sure that it was German, but he just had to test his theory out. And so what he did was something very cruel. Shortly after a group of babies were born, he separated them from their mothers and gave them to a group of nurses, nurses that he instructed not to speak to the babies. And he gave them another very cruel instruction as well, that they weren't to pick up the babies, carry them, cradle them, or hug them. They weren't to touch them any more than they had to to change them and just make sure they had food. They had to cut the experiment short because disastrously, none of the babies grew up to speak any language. As you may have guessed, all the babies died. All of them. And it was because of something we know to be very necessary for the flourishing of any human. People need people. A historian and another scientist from Spain reflected on this just years after it happened, and he wrote this in response to this. He said, these babies, they could not live without hugging. The babies literally died from a lack of hearing other human voices and, and receiving other human contact. And now this is something that is just known. It's just a given from modern science as well, that it is intrinsically a part of who we are, that we are people created, wired to need other people, to form in communities, to gather together. And we also know that when people don't, science tells us that, well, they put this phenomenon in medical terms. They say it is a failure to thrive. But they call it this all because... Well, who wants to really just say when people don't gather together, what's happening is not just a failure to thrive. You're just living, dying a slower death. Ask yourself, what happens when God's children don't gather together in groups? Ask yourself personally, what happens to you when you go to church on Sunday, but you don't gather together in groups? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're just going to go to hell in a handbasket. Because last Sunday, we talked about worship and what happens in worship. God's people come together, and when they gather in worship, what do they hear? They hear God's promises, and through those words, through the gospel, God works faith in someone's hearts. But ask yourself, what's going to happen when you don't 
gather together with other Christians to grow. You see, when you get together and worship God, he's going to work fruit in your life. Fruit like love, joy, peace. But when you don't connect with other Christians in any meaningful way, just like a baby who is never hugged or is not hugged often enough, well, they're going to end up with some some problems as they grow. There's going to be a ceiling on your growth as a Christian. There's going to be fruit in your life, but you're never going to reach a certain level of fruitfulness. Because just like a child who is never spoken to or never told that they're loved or, or never told that they're loved enough, well, we'd expect that they would have some emotional issues as they grow. And so it is with God's children. What spiritual issues are you going to face as you grow? And you don't know the level of connection that you have to God, the hope that you have in God. How are you going to live when you ignore a whole sector of God's commands that say to love one another, encourage one another, be and meet with one another? What's going to happen to your faith? What's going to happen to you? You see, Satan is carrying out a diabolical experiment. His goal is to not let you hear from someone else the words of God's love. His goal is to put people in your life who aren't going to embrace you with a spiritual hug. And before long, well, it's going to be simple things that drive you from serious spiritual things. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's that girl in group who one time made a comment and, and you just don't want to go back. Maybe it's that guy who just talks way too much and now all of a sudden you don't think it's worth your time. Maybe it's that person that is always bringing up politics and they're talking to you about that politician or that political point of view and they just assume that you have the same one. Now you look at this and you're like, I, I don't know if I want that. And yet Satan uses that to simply drive a wedge in between you and what's good for you. Wrapping your arms around the apostles' teachings, dedicating yourself to that, gathering together with other Christians to recognize the value and celebrate the Lord's Supper to be known and be known by others so that you can pray for things together more more than just, I hope God blesses the weather. And before long, you find yourself in a position where you're not hearing the voices of other Christians speaking into your life. And there's no one there who's, who's wrapping your arms around you, spiritually speaking. It's a fact. It's a fact that God creates people to be connected to one another. And it's, it's a fact that groups can be problematic because people can be problematic because people are sinners and they do sin and Satan tries to use sin to divide people up. That's true. But there is a greater truth. 
And that's that the power of groups, they don't have anything to do with you or me. The power of groups is not our problem. It's actually Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany, and he wrote a book that movingly describes what Christian community is all about. It's called Life Together. And in that book, he said this. He said, Christian community is not an ideal which we must realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ, in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and the strength and the promise of all our fellowship is in Christ alone, the more serenely we shall think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Do you realize what he's saying? The community and groups and the blessings of those things That's not our problem. It's not something we create. It's not something we manifest. But groups and the blessings that God gives in groups is something that God already created and he wants for you. He wants to give to you. And the power of that blessing that God gives to you when you connect to other Christians, it is founded and grounded in the promises that are wrapped up in Christ Jesus. And the more that you and I understand that, the more you and I realize that, the more beautifully... And wonderfully, we understand what's happening in groups, and we hope to have that in our lives. We pray to have that in our lives. And that brings us back to this word, pros carterontes. It is realizing that, that when we don't feel that we're grabbing hold to something or anything strong enough in our lives, there is someone who wraps their arms around us. That there is someone, and his name is Jesus, who sticks by us closer than a brother, closer than a friend, and it's his nail-marked hands that wrap their arms around you and me wherever two or three gather together in God's names. It is that there is someone who is faithful to us, someone who never gives up on us, even when we are faithless, and that is your Savior, Jesus. You know, the power of groups is in this, that we can be devoted, not because we're so strong or, or committed Christians, but there is someone who descended from heaven, died for you, rose for you, and now continues to give all things to you and rule things in your name. That's the power of groups, that Christ holds you fast, that Christ wraps his arms around you And the blessings that we experience as we connect to one another are only because of him. Yesterday, I was thinking about how to wrap this up, how to end this sermon about groups. And I was thinking through a couple different options. I was thinking maybe I could um, call out guys, call out the demographic that is the lowest participant nationally in groups and specifically in this church. I thought maybe I'd call you guys out and point you to the man up on the cross and just say, man up. Stop making excuses about why you're not connecting to other Christians. I'm like, I don't want to end that way. 
And I thought, you know, I'll just challenge everybody. Challenge everybody to, to try a group. If you haven't tried it before, try it for 30 days or 60 days and, and, and just see. Just see what difference it makes in your life. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to end that way. I was sitting there in the Costco parking lot with two sleeping boys in the back while my wife ran in to get something, and I got a text message. I got a text message from someone in my group, and I'm like, I think I'm not going to call anybody out or challenge anybody. I just want to show you. I just want to show you how good it is to gather together with other Christians in a group. A couple of weeks ago, our group was meeting, and we meet every single Wednesday at one o'clock, by the way. So if you call me during that time, it'll go straight to voicemail. And this is a few weeks back. I, I just brought up maybe a question, something that I was thinking about in my life. And to be honest with you, I, I haven't really thought about it since. And this is when I got one of those texts that you open up and you don't read it right away, but you just start scrolling because it's like this long and it, and it doesn't fit on your phone. I'm not going to read the whole text to you, but I'll read enough so you get the gist. My friend said this. He said, hey, Matt, I have been thinking for a while about what you said a couple weeks ago. And here's what I want you to know. Turned inward, things can often look uncertain or we wonder why this or that. But turned outward, here's what the question becomes. Why is God being so good to me? Why is God being so good to me that he takes the time to build me up in this moment? God's given you a lot, Matt. Keep, chicking, ch- keep chipping away at Satan's gate. Your strength is in the Lord. Your strength is in the Lord. And I don't know about you, but being on this side of groups, having seen and experienced all the joy that you have in groups, I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to go back to not having a group of people in my life who care about me spiritually, who pray for me spiritually, who even when I'm not thinking about questions and concerns that I have are doing that for me and I for them. And I want you to have that too. As we pulled out of uh, Costco, a flock of geese flew over the intersection and my wife pointed it out to our boys who are now awake And I thought back on a metaphor that I heard once from a pastor. You'll never see a goose flying south alone. If you do, it's flying to find other geese. Because geese have figured it out. That it's impossible to travel from Canada to Florida by yourself. But it's something you can do when you gather together. Maybe it's time Christians figure it out too. Amen. (laughs) 